This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Facebook Design invests in building and teaching designers using the best tools for the job. I asked product designer Earl Carlson what he has learned about design since working at Facebook. Collaboration is such a huge part of the job here. It's more so a part than anywhere else that I've worked before, which is really incredible. Um, You get to work with a lot of really talented people and figuring out how you work best together. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at provisionpath.com forward slash jobs. This week, Fog Creek Software is looking for a design engineer for Glitch. Segment is looking for a brand designer in San Francisco. We're looking for a design writer here at Revision Path. And for freelancers, Cactus Group is looking for a website designer. Check the job board for more information. We also have job listings from Indeed.com, so head to the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to apply and to search for any other listings. Don't forget to sign up for weekly job alerts so when there are new positions added to the job board, you'll get an email so you can be the first to apply. Again, that's revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, let's talk about our sponsors, Glitch, Google Design, and MailChimp. Glitch is the friendly community where you'll build the web app of your dreams. So whether you're into design or coding, music or art, Glitch is the right tool for you. You can start from scratch or remix any of the available projects and make them your own. And if you get stuck on something, just raise your hand and get help from the Glitch community. Get started on making something awesome today at Glitch.com. Whether it's defining a branding style in VR or creating a voice user interface that actually feels human, Google Design is committed to sharing the best design thinking from Google and beyond. Sign up for great stories, events, and the latest updates on material design at design.google forward slash newsletter. Again, that's design.google forward slash newsletter. You can also follow Google Design on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. Did you know that the number one email marketing priority is personalization? I mean, it makes sense if you think about it. You know, you only want to hear from the people and the businesses that you like. And certainly if you've gotten email in the past two or three weeks, you've gotten a lot of emails from companies. MailChimp helps make that happen with their robust campaign builder and a host of helpful automations. It's email marketing with a personal touch. Sign up today at MailChimp.com for a free account. MailChimp. Send better email. We've got a new review here from Daniqua. You might remember her from episode 221 back in December. Uh, Daniqua Rambert. Her review is titled Valuable Resource Highlighting Black Designers. Here it is. Revision Path was one of the first places I turned to when I wanted to find other black designers. As a podcast listener... Revision Path is a great resource to hear designers' stories and learn from their experience. Maurice has a great way of guiding the interview in such a way that each episode feels packed with vital information while still feeling like a natural conversation. I'm very grateful for this resource. 
Wow, well, thank you so much to Nikwa for that review. Wow, I'm telling you, y'all need to leave more reviews. You know, I tell people all the time when I'm recording the show and I'm talking to people, you know, kind of one-on-one over Skype, it's fairly solitary. So oftentimes I don't really know how the episode has been received or if y'all like it unless I hear back from you, whether it's through email, through social media, or through a review like this. And reviews like this really help because they bump up the ranking for uh, Revision Path for Design Podcasts over on Apple Podcasts. It lets more people across the world see the show when it gets more reviews. So, you know, please leave a rating and a review. Of course, I say that on every episode, but it really, it really helps out. And I'll read your review just like I read the Nequas right here on the show. All right, now for this week's interview, we're talking to UX designer Tony Turner in Cleveland, Ohio. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Tony Turner, and I'm a user experience designer. So I have experience in a range of applications of user experience design from physical devices to websites to various portals and apps and things like that. So that's kind of my background. When did you first get interested in UX? I'd say back in college, I studied cognitive science. So I kind of, you know, was interested in how humans interact with things and how people interact with each other. So I kind of spoke with some professors about how I could apply that interest. And they brought up user interface design, UX design, things like that. So I kind of got exposed to it that way. I did a little reading on human computer interaction And I kind of tailored my education to that once I found out that it was that interesting. So that's kind of where I started with it. And now, if you can, you know, for the people that are listening, can you tell us a little bit about what human-computer interaction is and how that relates to UX? Sure. So human-computer interaction is the study of how people interact with machines effectively. So it doesn't have to be with just a PC and you're interacting with a, you know, a keyboard and a mouse. It could be a cell phone, of course, and it can also be any other kind of machine that you may interact with. It can also be how you interact with objects that aren't necessarily considered to be computers. So in the field, they also study things as crazy as how people interact with their shoes and things like that. So it's pretty broad. It's really just application of, of the human mind and human thinking to interaction with objects. It sounds like there might even be some psychology kind of lumped in with that, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so as I said, my background is in cognitive science, and that's kind of where I got exposed to it. We studied things like phenomenology, which is kind of the study of how you perceive and interact with the world and your sort of mental models and things like that. So that background is is definitely found in in a lot of the applications of human-computer interaction and how we design screens and how we design various prototypes and things like that. Overall, what was your time like at Case Western? It was cool. I met a lot of different people. It's a pretty diverse school, so there are a lot of different interests. A lot of people are focused on science, but there's a lot of liberal arts focus as well. And in my program, I got exposed to both. We took a lot of philosophy classes as well as things like artificial intelligence and computer science classes. So it was nice to get exposed to to those things. And, And everybody came from different backgrounds and things like that. Everybody was really smart. So it was intimidating at first, but it was fun. It was a good time. Was UX something that you kind of always wanted to do? Like before you went to Case Western, was this something that you had in mind? 
So I've always been interested in design. I actually wanted to do architecture initially, and then I found engineering, and I thought that would be kind of my focus. So I took a lot of engineering classes early on, and eventually I came around to cognitive science. I realized that I really had that interest in how humans think and perceive and act and things like that. And I found that UX with UX, I could apply all of those interests, the technology interest and the design interest and the psychology interest. Nice. It all just kind of came together, it sounds like. Yep. So tell me a little bit about the work that you're doing right now. You're at Progressive, is that right? Yep. So Progressive is the large insurance company. So I'm currently working in the commercial space. So we sell insurance to small businesses, so for vehicles and also for property and tools and things like that. So I'm working on various web properties and apps and things like that to optimize their experience when they're getting a quote or when they're servicing a quote. So I'm doing some user research, interacting with agents, interacting with customers, and also doing a lot of design. So getting into Photoshop and Illustrator and things like that, but also doing a lot of web prototyping, so HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, which is a lot more than I did at my previous job. I didn't really do much web design and things like that at my previous position. So it's good to get some, to get kind of exercise that muscle. Back in the day, I did a lot of web development during internships and things like that. And even way back in like elementary school, I was into web design, but I haven't really been able to apply it at work in a long time. So it's been nice. Nice, nice. So what is a typical day like for you? Like walk me through a, just an average day. All right. So I'll come in, take a look at emails, um, try not to get too deep into emails, and then I'll kind of plan out my day. I've got this journal that's pretty nice, pretty detailed called the self journal, and I can map out my day, my goals and what I'm grateful for and things like that. So it's pretty helpful to stay on track. So I usually right now I'm working on a redesign of a customer portal. So I'm getting into Photoshop and kind of updating the designs there and also building out a web prototype. It's responsive. So I have to, you know, build out media queries and things like that to make sure it looks good on phones and tablets and things like that. And then I have a lot of meetings. So we meet with product owners. We meet with various stakeholders. Sometimes we meet with customers and agents and folks like that to to really get a sense of what the requirements are and what the needs are. So those are ever changing. It's an agile environment. So for this particular project, we haven't gotten started with the official development yet. So it's nice to be able to just do all the prototyping up front. But once we get started with that, then I'll be interacting a lot with the developers and kind of making sure that they implement the design as, as we want it to be. Yeah. So other than that, you know, I try to meditate every day for a little while. And that's really helpful to get centered and get relaxed, you know, keep the heart rate down and everything like that. So that's pretty much my day. A lot of meetings, a lot of design work. And it's really fun. I really enjoy, like I said, I haven't gotten into the web development in a while. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to to come over to Progressive to kind of exercise that muscle a bit. Mm-hmm. And it's been fun. You know, it's been fun getting to to work in that space again. I don't know if a lot of people would look at an insurance company and automatically think UX. Why is mm-hmm. UX important in that field? Well, a lot of people nowadays will 
sort of go through their entire quote process online. So in the past, you know, you would work with an agent and you would be on the phone and telling them various things about your driving habits, about your history and things like that. But now a lot of people kind of complete their quotes online. So we need to be able to design that experience appropriately. So it's no longer phone conversation. So you have all of these questions. They have to be organized appropriately. And they also have to kind of cascade appropriately. So some answers that you give will introduce different questions than if you gave a different answer. So we have to make sure all of that works well from a user experience perspective. And that's the same for agents. So when you do call an agent, they're kind of interacting with a similar interface. And they have to also, you know, have a nice experience as they go through that because they don't want to have pauses and things like that as they're interviewing you. So, yeah, that's where the main user experience component comes in. It's really to optimize that flow and make sure it's as quick as possible. The competitors all have really quick processes and we want to make sure that we're in the same boat as them. Yeah, I can imagine when you're going through that process, speed is important because if it takes a long time, then someone can easily just go to one of your competitors. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, yeah, that's kind of the thing we harp on the most. We also look at finish to start ratio. So we want to make sure that the questions aren't so difficult that people fall off. You know, so the way we word questions or the way we present controls and things like that are really important, especially when we get down to mobile interactions. So we look at how often people fall off and where they fall off and things like that and try to optimize the experience at those points. That's a really good idea because I can imagine, you know, going through however many forms and and things like that that you have when you're filling out a quote, you want to know where those those stop gaps or those bottlenecks might be. I, I know when I did surveys or I still do surveys like for revision path and stuff, I think mm-hmm. about that same sort of thing about how am I making sure that the questions that I'm asking, for example, are not leading questions or are not, you know, priming the user to respond in a certain way or might be confusing and then they don't know where to proceed from there because I've made it, you know, required or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. The way you lay out forms is really important. And that's one of the things I did at Highland back in the day. Not really back in the day. It wasn't that long ago, but I feel like it was a long time ago. <laughs> uh, but we worked <laughs> on a lot of forms there, medical forms and things like that. And, you know, in a hospital, people are traumatized in some cases and they want to kind of get through the technical things as quickly as possible so so yeah there's sort of a an empathetic piece to it as well where we're trying to make sure that we're not stressing people out too much with these forms now you've worked in the software space Uh, you mentioned highland you've also worked at phillips now Mm -hmm. you're in this insurance space at progressive do you see much of a change in how you work because these are such different fields, like Highland Software, Philips is, is also kind of software, but, you know, progressive is insurance. Not really. It's pretty much the same process. You know, I'm kind of trying to understand how people interact with something. Like I said, with human-computer interaction, it's really about how you interact with anything. And I've been able to apply the same processes for each of the positions that I've been in. So like I said, for this recent position... I do a lot more web development. And at Philips, I did a lot more on the industrial design side, kind of making sure things work from an ergonomics perspective. And at Highland, it was mostly, you know, those apps and the various portals people could go into. So all of the the sort of 
technologies were different that people were interacting with, but the process was pretty similar for me. And I found that the the stakeholders were also pretty similar. Their product owners on each of these and their their QA people involved and things like that. So the processes are all pretty similar as well. But there are a few differences, yeah. Tell me about your time at Philips. What sort of things were you working on there? Mostly CT technologies. So I worked on CT and MR machines and PET scanning machines and things that were combined into different machines. And also the various software that you interact with to control those. So there are various portals that you interact with both when you're doing the scan and after the scan as a physician where you're trying to understand what the images are showing you. So if you're looking at looking for lung nodules or something like that, there's an application for that that kind of optimizes your ability to understand what's going on with any kind of lung disease and things like that. So there are a ton of applications and they all have different goals and different needs and there are different types of physicians that interact with these. So it was really interesting to, to get an understanding of all of these different personas and all of these different use cases and try to apply those to this software without, you know, messing up the consistency across the board. Because different physicians interact with different applications within Philips. And so it was important to also maintain some sort of consistency with these applications. But yeah, like I said, there was a lot of ergonomics and stuff going on. And that was really interesting. That was the first time I got to experience that. So I did work a lot with industrial designers where we were trying to understand, you know, what what is the maximum force necessary to complete this task so we're not straining the end user. We think about how often people are, are completing a certain task, how often are they reaching up and pressing a button or moving a table and things like that, and how can we optimize that experience for them and make it so they don't strain anything as they're interacting with the machines. We also thought about the patient experience. So, you know, obviously, like I mentioned before, if you're in a hospital getting a CT scan, you're probably a little nervous. You're worried about what the results are going to be. And it's also a big, scary machine that you're going into this enclosed space. So there are a lot of ideas around how to make that a nicer experience with lights and with various sounds, soothing sounds and things like that. And one project we had to fix this breathing indicator. So the existing indicator. So a breathing indicator, first of all, is something that tells you how you're supposed to breathe during a CT scan. This is usually used when there's a heart scan and your breathing might get in the way of being able to measure the rate of the heart and take the pictures of the heart because it has to be very specific. So the breathing indicator will tell you to hold your breath and to breathe at certain intervals and things like that. And the existing one was really small and the, the voice commands were really hard. So I got to do a lot of redesign of that to kind of show that indicator across the whole CT scanner and also work on the sound design to kind of optimize the vocal instructions as well. So that was really fun. There were a lot of end users and there were a lot of processes. And the other difference that I would mention is that it's very FDA regulated. So there were a lot of documentation things to do. And we had to make sure that we made things that were safe to use, you know, things that wouldn't hurt or maim or kill anyone, you know, while they're getting these CT scans. So. What are your thoughts on wearables for medical use? I, I think we're starting to see a lot of that now, like the Apple Watch has ways that it can monitor your heart rate and 
calories mm-hmm. burned and things like that. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's great. I've started using the Android watch a while back. And it's been nice, you know, being able to measure heart rate and being able to measure steps and things like that. Um, and also to control other functions like music and things like that. So I think it's a good a good thing. I like the direction they're going with also the fabric wearable. So you can kind of track your heart rate through your shirt and things like that. I think that's really cool. So, yeah, embedded systems in general, I think, is really taking off. And, and hopefully, you know, we'll be able to improve the health of a lot of people with those things so so yeah yeah i think it's great i like the apple watch i've tried it you know i I don't like it as much as i like the android watch but right now i think everyone's kind of just figuring out how to do it correctly and things like that it's really an early stage and i like kind of like that because there's a lot of experimentation and things like that going on at this point but i think it'll really help people in the long run what makes you prefer android over apple in that respect just the interface, the way you interact with it, of course, that's the primary thing I'm going to care about. But so the Apple Watch, the way you kind of navigate to the different apps you have available and the way you kind of interact with different things, I just didn't really like that much. It seemed kind of cumbersome. You have these kind of web of bubbles that you interact with. It was kind of difficult to to get a handle on, whereas the on the Android, it's more of a list that you can scroll. So I think that's a you know a little easier of an interaction that, to to get a handle on. Yeah. Yeah. Now Android, I think they're calling their their service Wear OS. I mm-hmm. think before it was like Android Wear or something like that. So. Mm-hmm. So the watch that I have is an Asus Zen watch. So it has a pretty. It's a circular face, uh, round face, and it has. It's pretty large and it has decent number of applications. The applications kind of got pulled over automatically based on the phone applications I have. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's been nice. It's you know I, I use it to track steps mostly and control various things. So it's been it's been pretty cool so far. I keep telling myself I should get a smartwatch, but like mm-hmm. I've got my phone and i'm usually mm-hmm. always holding my phone and also i'm not that much of a watch person but i guess yeah. i'm wondering like what affordances would you have for a smart watch over a phone like i can only think it would be in those in- instances where you couldn't get to your phone because it was in your backpack or something like that yeah it's nice as like sort of a middleman you get all these notifications and instead of having to pick up the phone and and check it out you can just you know, take a glance over at the watch to see what it is. And then if it's nothing important, you can ignore it and move on and keep continuing what you're doing. So it kind of takes away a little bit of the interaction that you have to do with the phone. The other thing is you can put the phone on silent. So, you know, if you get a text message and you're in a meeting, you get notified of it and you can actually, you know, kind of glance down at the watch if you want to, to see what it is. But there's no real indication to anyone else that you got any kind of message. Same uh-huh. thing when the phone rings, you know, the watch rings and you can decide whether or not it's an important call and dismiss it or not. So, yeah, I think that's kind of the, the best thing to me is just that middleman functionality that that's there with it. Okay. Now, oftentimes when working with clients or with stakeholders, like you mentioned that you do at Progressive, sometimes they'll just want you to just kind of jump right into a project and start designing. 
mm-hmm. you talk about why user research is important before you do that kind of sort of blind work? Yeah. Yeah. So I think we all tend to have a good understanding of the things that we're working on. And we, we, you know, we understand it from a technical perspective and we understand it from a sort of end goal perspective. And we look at it and say, okay, this is how it should be. But usually when we get into the user research, we find that a lot of our assumptions are wrong or they're not exactly right. There are always these surprises that we find in usability testing and doing observations and things like that. So that's why I think it's really important to do user research up front because we can kind of get a lot of those questions answered initially so we don't start off in the wrong direction. I found that when we start off in the wrong direction, we spend a lot of development time on building the wrong thing. And then we end up having to do a lot of redevelopment, which is really costly. So, yeah, I just think, you know, getting out and doing observations, understanding users, doing interviews and things like that is really helpful to build the correct product, to build the right design. I've done that myself where I've kind of taken off with the design and gotten really far into Illustrator and Photoshop and things like that and then did usability testing later and found that. I needed to change things significantly. So I kind of learned from that and said, well, whenever I can, I want to be able to do some user research and and understand the existing space, understand the market, understand people's needs and things like that, and really optimize the design with that information. So I want to talk also about design thinking, uh, because I feel like that's sort of where we're kind of going here in the conversation I know there's been a lot of thoughts about design thinking. I feel that certainly is something which a lot of companies, both design-focused and non-design-focused, are using in order to bring that kind of thoughtful process into their you know, creation process. We have a private Slack community here at Revision Path, and one of the things we've been discussing fairly recently is this, uh, I guess it's an article or an interview about Natasha Jen. She's a designer at Pentagram. And she kind of has been boldly shunning design thinking, you know, saying that it undermines design. What do you think about that? Do you think that's true? Not really. I think it can if you give the keys to the wrong people. So by that, I mean, if you have non-designers controlling the direction of a particular product or design without any kind of assistance from from real designers, I think that can undermine a project and I think that can lead to some issues. But I think sort of enabling everyone to have a design mentality is very helpful. So one example I have is at Highland for a web project, I had all of the stakeholders come in and do sketching. So it was a redesign project and for each sort of interaction point, I had them come in and and have an opportunity to sketch and talk about their ideas and things like that. And then we went from there and kind of did the real design work and figuring out what direction we should take. We, We integrated the best ideas into that design, but we didn't use those designs at those sketches as the the actual design that we were putting forward to the developers. We kind of just brought in the things that were interesting. So I think, you know, enabling people to participate in the design process is good as long as you have someone sort of refereeing everything that's going on. So that's kind of my opinion on it. I don't think it's a negative thing in in general, but I think it can be if you don't kind of rein in the, the various ideas that are being put forth. 
Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, certainly it's one of those things where I think of design thinking almost like the scientific method in a way. You're, you know, kind of forming a hypothesis, you're experimenting, you're trying things out. And with design thinking, it's very similar to that. You're putting forth an option, you're iterating on it, you're researching to kind of hopefully reach, you know, whatever the the final product is or something like that. And again, yeah, involving stakeholders in on that lets them see that design isn't just something that takes place in Photoshop or in Illustrator. They Mm -hmm. get a chance to see how much thought and care actually goes into it. So introducing Mm -hmm. it at the right time, I think, is important. I I agree with that. Who are some of your influences when it comes to UX? I would say Don Norman was really influential reading his books. You know, I kind of did that early on and got exposed to various ideas like affordances and things like that. It's been really nice working and, and understanding the application of those principles. You know, I kind of I was exposed to it from a theoretical perspective at first, but I kind of now I kind of have a deeper understanding of it now that I've been working in the field and a deeper appreciation for the stuff he was talking about in those books. You know, Nielsen is another one. I kind of read a lot of blog posts and things like that from that group, the Nielsen Norman group. And there are also various architects that I was inspired by. Like I mentioned before, I was interested in architecture early on. So I did a lot of drawing and a lot of things like that drawing buildings and things like that back in the day and really thinking about how people would interact with these structures. And I think probably the best architects take a UX perspective when they're designing buildings and thinking about that real experience that people have. So folks like Frank Gehry and Zaha Hadid, Frank Lloyd Wright, folks like that were very inspirational for me as a designer and kind of studying their designs and studying their design process and design philosophy and things like that. There's a lot of philosophy in architecture, and I think that's really interesting. So yeah, uh, those are kind of my main influences. When you look back to sort of the earlier moments of your career, is there anything that you regret not doing due to fear? Yeah, I think in some cases I didn't speak up as much as I should have. So if I saw something that didn't look right, Say we had a meeting about some existing design and and there was something that I had an opinion about early on. I didn't really speak that opinion, but I've learned that eventually either it's going to be out there and people are going to have frustration with it or someone else is going to speak up about it. So there's really, you know, no point in holding your tongue. It's it's not okay to be overly aggressive or overly you know, critical and things like that. But it is important to speak your mind about various things because it could end up being something that's very important. And I've learned that over time, just being more confident in kind of sharing my opinion on things. Mm-hmm. What advice has really stuck with you over the years as you've kind of gone through this journey as a designer? So a long time ago, when I was still in college, I met this woman. She was a UX designer in in the field and she kind of became my mentor. And one of the things she said was to not be married to designs. And once you're kind of working in the field, you either come to understand that or you don't, but it kind of reduces a lot of the stress and things like that that you experience as you deliver designs. 
you're also more willing to deliver designs early to get that feedback. If someone says, no, this isn't going to work for whatever reason, you're more easily able to throw it away and, and start fresh. So I think that that was really important advice to not be married to the things that you're creating and to really be open minded when, in terms of feedback and things like that, especially when it comes from the people that are actually going to be using your technology. So, yeah. Now, with all of this work that you've done in the enterprise space, with ergonomics and industrial design, and now with uh, insurance, you know, people listening might not think that these are, you know, and I'll just be honest here, they might not think these are like sexy design careers to go into or or sexy Mm -hmm. industries to do work in. Can you talk about why UX designers should be looking to these fields? I think the main thing is the challenge. There's a lot of complexity when you're looking at business applications. So obviously, you know, there's a ton of engineering that goes into a CT machine. There's a ton of engineering that goes into the the sort of quoting process and you're developing all of these algorithms to figure out rates. Also with at Highland, there was a lot of engineering that would go into kind of managing the, the documents of these various businesses that we worked with. And I think that's really the interesting part of working with business applications is that they can be so complex. I think consumer applications can be complex too, but the it's more important for them to be sort of to the point in accomplishing a single goal, whereas these business applications, you have to consider the goal of the individual that's using it, but also the goal of the business that's purchasing it and thinking about you know, how we're optimizing this whole system of interactions and things like that. So, so I think that's the most interesting part to me. I agree that it can be an unsexy thing at times. You know, you don't necessarily get to run very far with the prettiest things, the prettiest designs and things like that. But overall, it's been really fun. It's, it's really interesting. And nowadays, business applications are becoming more like consumer applications. So we do have to really consider the visual design. And we do get to kind of, like I mentioned before, get into Photoshop and get into Illustrator and make sure that things are pixel perfect and things like that. Because the people that are buying the software and the hardware expect things to work like their Apple iPhone apps and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, it's been, you know, ultimately it's not going to be much different over time. But the challenge, the complexity is still there. And that's what I find to be really interesting about it. Yeah, you know, I tell people that it's funny, you know, I've had my own design studio for nine years. And oftentimes when I would talk to potential clients, they would always say that they're not a designer. They're not a designer or anything like that. But I tell Mm -hmm. people that we all have this kind of innate design knowledge within us that sometimes you just need to unlock. Maybe it's working with the right person or what have you, but... I say we all have that knowledge because everything that we interact with has been designed in some sort of way from the clothes that we wear to the car we mm-hmm. drive, the chairs we sit in, et cetera. Someone had to really take those considerations into mind. And because we've always interacted with these things, we have this kind of innate knowledge of knowing when something has been well-designed and when it's been poorly designed. And mm-hmm. sort of to, like you said, people expect these things, especially in industrial kinds of applications, they just expect them to work. Hmm. You don't want the tools to be working against you. And if that is the case, then that's obviously a signal that something has been been poorly designed. But yeah, that complexity of knowing that the tools that you build kind of always have to work in that way. It's not something like building a website or a SaaS tool where if you get an error code, it's something you could easily 
you know, maybe put off for a while or go back and fix. In some cases, these are, are UX affordances that could cost someone their life. I know that's really drastic, mm-hmm. but I mean, I mean, it's something where <laughs> it, it means something like it, it has, you know, real tangible benefits or I guess, uh, not benefits. I just blanked on the word I was thinking of, but you know what I mean? These types mm-hmm. of things have consequences. That's the word I was looking for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. In a lot of cases, you know, people will come up with lawsuits and things like that. If your your designs in these business spaces aren't optimal. Um, yeah. So, yeah, for sure. I'm always seeing something about a class action lawsuit against some company because of things like, like, I don't know, I think there's one out now for like the PlayStation 3 where there mm-hmm. was like some technical issue or UX issue or something. And now there's like a class action lawsuit where everyone that enters into it is going to get like 40 bucks or something, which you're like, oh, yeah. 40 bucks, that's not a lot. But then you multiply that times like 30,000 people and yeah. <laughs> it could be it could be a really expensive problem for a company to solve if something has been yeah. poorly designed in that way. For sure. Yeah. Do you have like a, a dream project or anything that you'd really like to work on? A dream project? Uh, yeah. Maybe like working in space or something. I think that's really interesting. I'm kind of a nerd and I like Star Trek and Star Wars and stuff. Uh, okay. So I think that would be cool, you know, helping astronauts with their whatever they interact with and things like that. Be cool. Well, I mean, I'm pretty sure NASA is always looking, although I don't know what their funding looks like right now with our current president. But <laughs> <laughs> there's a research institute in Ohio, Glenn, Glenn Research Center is there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, that might be something to think about. But then if you're also thinking like like private sector, I know here in Atlanta we've got Honeywell. We actually just mm-hmm. had a industrial designer from Honeywell on the show a few weeks back. And nice. I don't know what people really think about how many consumer goods and things like that end up coming from like the aerospace industry, mm-hmm. like 3D printing, for example. I talked about that in the episode, too. But I sort of got my first taste of what 3D printing was and actually human-computer interaction when I interned at NASA like 15-plus years ago. I'm dating myself. But, (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it's interesting how so many of those kinds of technical affordances are, you know, end up trickling down into our everyday use. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Is there anything in particular that you want to really accomplish this year? Hmm. Yeah, I started working on building embedded systems and stuff. I found this application called Johnny5 where you can build embedded systems with JavaScript. So it's nice because I don't have to learn a new language and stuff like that. So I kind of want to get through their sort of training document and be able to start building embedded systems. So I think it'd be really cool to solve problems that people have, UX problems with embedded systems. Like you mentioned, there's a smartwatch and there's various things that we have now that kind of help people, you know, accomplish basic goals in life. And I think that it'd be really cool to kind of build stuff like that. So kind of getting through that sort of ramp up and training with this system, I think is one thing I want to accomplish this year. And then following that, I want to kind of start building these things out. That's the goal. We'll see if it happens, but that's the goal. Okay. Yeah, I really feel like Google needs to make that happen between like the Google Home and the Google Assistant and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. You can tell they're trying to build like this embedded system, this ecosystem, but Mm -hmm. everything doesn't necessarily talk to each other in the Mm -hmm. same way. Like I have a Google Home on my desk and I've got Google Assistant on my phone, 
but mm-hmm. they work in different ways. They don't really work together. Sometimes mm. they work together. Like if I ask a question on the phone, sometimes the Google Home will answer it. But for example, if I need to set a reminder, I can't do it on the Google Home. I can only do it on my phone, even though they go to the same calendar. So like sometimes there's yeah. these weird like trade-offs that happen. Mm. Yeah, and that's where UX people come in because yeah. I'm sure they didn't consider the fact that someone might own both of those and how those things would interact with each other. Yeah, and how yeah, and to have them in close proximity because I noticed that that only happens when they're in the same room. Like if mm. I take my phone into the bathroom and ask a question, the phone will answer it. But if I'm in the same room with a Google Home, it will answer it. It's it's kind of weird, you know. It's interesting yeah. how that is all like slowly working in some sort of way. Mm-hmm. What keeps yeah. you motivated and inspired with all this work? I'm not trying to say that your work is is unsexy. I know when I said that before, I just kind of meant that. Oftentimes when people talk about UX, certainly I think even when we've had people on the show, most people only look at it in terms of the web and working for like these big Silicon Valley type companies doing yeah. UX. They might not look at, oh, doing UX for an insurance company in the Midwest. Well, that sounds interesting, you know. What is it that that keeps you motivated with your work? Just that interest in understanding how people think and how people interact and operate. You know, I took some anthropology classes in college, and it was really interesting to to see how they study human interaction and things like that and how they study culture and things like that. And I think that's the most interesting part, that I get to design things for people and that I get to make people's lives a little easier, you know, kind of improving the quality of life of, you know, people getting insurance or people going through a CT scan. I think it's really cool to to be able to impact people that way and to be able to understand them more deeply. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, those are the kind of the main things that inspire me. What would you like to see more of from the UX community? Probably getting younger folks invested. I think there's a lot of meetups and things like that for people that are already in the industry in some capacity or people that are trying to get into the industry. But there's not a lot of sort of reaching down and and showing younger folks that this is something that exists. And I think that's really important for it to be a really strong industry. You know, Um, you see it with some of the other industries. If you look at engineering, you know, there's a lot of outreach and things like that to get kids involved. Mm-hmm. You look at even things like accounting and things like that. There's some outreach to get people involved, whereas I don't really see a lot of that with the UX community. I see it with like graphic design, things like that, but not user experience per se. So I think that's something that we should do more of. Because like I said, I found out about it and I found that it was something that was really interesting, but it wasn't something I saw in the career manuals. It wasn't something I heard from the people that came to visit my high school and things like that. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, I think that's something that, that we need to do more of. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? What kind of projects do you want to be working on? Mm, what kind of projects? I don't know. Just things that are interesting. I like to mix it up, obviously, you know, having been in these different spaces. But I just want to be doing something that's that's interesting. I don't want to be bored at work. I don't want things to be too easy. So anything that has some complexity and some some detail to it, I think is something that I'm really interested in doing within the next five years. And like I said, I also want to kind of build out these embedded systems and see where I can go with that. The exposure I got from Philips with working with these hardware 
manifestations was really interesting and I kind of want to do that on a smaller scale on my own and kind of see where I go with that. So we'll see. Within five years, maybe I'll have something built out. I have a few ideas for various things like a smoke detector application and things like that. So so we'll see. We'll see where I'm at within five years. Space might be the place, you know? Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, Tony, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? So I have a website tonyplus.me so you can find stuff on there and then i'm also on twitter at anthony turner that's it you can find all my stuff there okay all right cool well tony turner i want to thank you you know so much for coming on the show thank you for really kind of giving a good insight into not only just what you do with ux but why it is important and the reason that i kind of kept harping on this point about it not being a at least the industry part that you're in and not being this sort of unsexy thing is that I think that's what people need to see. They need to see that UX is something that influences us in a lot of different ways and that it goes far past what you see on a website or in a mobile browser. You know, like you said, the work that you were doing with Phillips, even the work you're doing now with Progressive, you're helping to enhance the user experience of a lot of things that people may just take for granted in their everyday lives, you know, as mm-hmm. we use these tools and these services and we just expect them to work, we don't really think about the people behind them that, you know, do the research to ensure that that's the thing. So um, I just kind of want to show a different side of that to people. And cool. I think you're doing a great job. Certainly, you know, look in the space. Look at Glenn. I'm telling you, check out Glenn Research Center. But, yeah, thank, thank you. you again so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Sounds great. Thank you. Appreciate it. Love being here. Thoughts of And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Tony Turner and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Tony and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, Glitch, Google Design, and MailChimp. Facebook designers work on creative products that are used by over 2 billion people. But what's it like actually working there? Everything Facebook designs is done at scale, so design critiques, metrics, and other factors are a huge part of how they work. Sound interesting? Then learn more about Facebook design and what they do at facebook.com forward slash design. Glitch is the friendly community where you'll build the web app of your dreams. From games to art to music and hardware, Glitch is flexible enough to create some really powerful tools. You can even use it for work or to learn how to code. The possibilities are endless. So what will you create today? Get started at glitch.com. Whether it's defining a branding style in VR or creating a voice user interface that actually feels human, Google Design is committed to sharing the best design thinking from Google and beyond. Sign up today for great stories, events, and the latest updates on material design at design.google forward slash newsletter. Again, that's design.google forward slash newsletter. You can also follow Google Design on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. MailChimp is the world's largest marketing automation platform. They support millions of customers from black design podcasts to small e-commerce shops to big online retailers, and they support the creative community as well. MailChimp really gives you the marketing tools to be yourself on a bigger stage. Visit MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. 
Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you like this episode, then please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Like I said at the top of the show, it only takes a minute or two. It really helps more people learn about the show here in the U.S. and internationally. Like I mentioned, I think in another episode, that I get a daily email to see where Revision Path is ranked. Somehow we're like the number one design podcast in Malta. Shout out to Malta if you're listening from Malta. Thanks for listening. (laughs) Uh, But the reviews also help the show by bumping us up in the rankings for design podcasts here in the U.S. as well. And I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Now, if you're listening to this and you want to hear next week's episode early, then you should become our patron over at Patreon. Now more than ever, Revision Path needs your support to make sure that stories about black designers and creatives in our field are being told in their own words. So if you support us, if you support our mission, just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge today. For just $5 a month, you can get access to behind-the-scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.